We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello and welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. So this is the fourth episode in a series of culture podcasts that we are doing alongside World Strides Excel. World Strides Excel are the industry leaders at international tours with over 15 years experience delivering soccer tours for a wide range of clientele including the University of Maryland and the men's side and the 2017 national champions on the women's side, Stanford University. So basically you pick the country or countries and their experts will customize the trip that will include competitive matches, training sessions with the international coaches, tickets to professional games, sightseeing, all that good stuff. They also offer quality of support and service, financial assistance, liability coverage, hassle-free travel, easy registration. So next winter, we are taking the first ever Modern Soccer Coach Education Tour with World Strides Excel. We're gonna to go to Barcelona on February 6th to the 12th. So really, really excited about that. Working alongside Eric at World Strides to finalize the schedule and putting together as much coach education, as many visits as we can get in that time. So always wanted to do Spain, the Spanish methodology, their culture has fascinated me for a long time. I've never done it, so I'm excited to do it with, with World Strides and also a group of coaches that are gonna come over and, and hopefully challenge each other uh, as well as being challenged by the, the culture in, in Barcelona. So can't wait for that and we'll be posting details of that very, very soon. For this episode, we have Cody Royal with us. Cody is the author of Where Others Won't, which is about taking people innovation from the locker room to the boardroom. So looking at the parallels between business and sport, really recommend checking it out. Um, he is the sports consultant at NTSQ Sports. He's also the head coach of Team Canada in Aussie Rules. So Cody is a thinker of performance. He's a thinker of leadership, setting a vision in the organization. Um, and he, he questions all the typical beliefs that we have inside cultures, which is what I loved about the book. The, the typical biases that we, that we have within teams and how culture is structured. He questions that and, and asks us and challenges us to look at it a little bit deeper. So we're going to do that in this podcast. Uh, we're going to look at soccer. We're going to look at uh, other sports and we're going to look at business as well and see what we can do to bring them all together and, and, and improve our players and our teams. So you're going to enjoy this and it should get you thinking maybe in a different path than the other podcasts have done. So please let me know what you think. Um, as always, I really, really appreciate the feedback. Appreciate your coaches reaching out, uh, putting stuff on Twitter, Instagram, uh, both at Gary Kernin and MSC Education. Always love hearing you know what resonates, what you like about it. And again, if you could leave a review or a little like or a star rating at uh, on the iTunes, that would be huge before you leave today. So uh, here's Cody, and hope you enjoy. Cody, thanks for joining me this morning on the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Gary, thanks for having me. Big fan of the show. Your book, 
where others won't, the blend of sports lessons and business. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the title. Why won't they? <laughs> That's a good question. No one's raised that with me yet. I think uh, I, like most books, I kind of stumbled into the title uh, as I was going through and writing it. But I think originally it stemmed from this idea where to create a competitive advantage in in sports, you have to be willing to go where others won't. And then the parallel in that with business was just too good to ignore where I don't think there's enough, particularly big companies really pushing those same boundaries. So, you know, we talk about in sports marginal gains and I think there's probably a spot for that in the corporate world. Um, so, yeah, it was it was something that was stumbled upon. It, this wasn't the name as I was developing the book, but it was just too good to refuse. As an Aussie rules coach, I don't know much about the game except the speed and physicality are, are huge elements of it. Mm-hmm. But at what stage of your life did you realize that the people and leadership skills matter just as much as those technical and physical aspects? Yeah, I've probably always been a, a student of whatever game I'm interested in. I, I'm obsessed with, you know, the the nuances of coaching and leadership. So I'd say I probably knew that pretty early. And I talk about this at, in the tail end of my book where I think my playing career was pretty much ended by the fact that I couldn't get out of my own head. And I think that that has served me well in, in leadership and coaching and how I've progressed through um, the coaching ranks. Um, so I, I think I learned that pretty early on and it's just been this culmination of a whole bunch of things, both my own experiences and then studying a whole range of different sports. Like I'm, I, I was obsessed early on with the NFL and, and with Premier League football and all these different sports. And I could see the, the crossover between how people were managed and how people were led and what really mattered. And sometimes it is skill for sure, but often it's those little, you know, yeah, those little personal relationships that occur between a player and, and a coach or a group of players and a coach. Um, and, you know, we, we're sitting here speaking a couple of days after the Warriors win the NBA title and you just see so much of that come to fruition with someone like Steve Kerr, who you just see him in action and see him talking behind closed doors to the, to the players and the way that he talks to them. Um, and it's just exceptional. And so I'm trying to bring that to the fore for the business world and say, this is something that we can all do. A number of people will probably ask and rightly so, uh, why did you interview me for the book? Um, but I want to know about <laughs> Ashley Lawrence. So yep. Canadian woman soccer player, played college in the US, now plays at PSG. Uh, why did you, why did you go and look for her? Yeah. I was really interested in her scenario. So at that time, there weren't too many of the Canadian women playing internationally. And I was really interested in the dynamic at PSG and particularly around uh, the the vast array of nationalities that they have at that club and, and how that works you know, from a, a coaching and leadership perspective. And what was really interesting was you know, we, we talked for probably about an hour about that and some of the things that they do internally that allow all their players to be able to communicate in the same language. You know, there's, there's Polish and, you know, uh, Spanish, like North American Spanish versus, you know, um, 
Spain Spanish and all these different little nuances. And then how do you make a team come together and succeed? Um, I find that fascinating because of the challenges that we talk about, you know, in the corporate world in, in North America, we're not talking about different languages. Um, and so, you know, how can you get 12 or 15 different languages to all be able to communicate with each other and perform at a high level? That's fascinating to me. Yeah. She, in, in your work, your interview with her, she spoke about the, how impressed she was of the coaches of PSG having that collective vision, she calls it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, th- I look at that and I think I've never heard it framed that way. But do you look then as as other coaches are probably nodding, saying, "Yeah, we have a collective vision." So, but mm. but they don't. They're just saying we all need to win, or we're going to win the league this year. We're going to win the championship this year. So, is it finding the way to do it, or is it looking a bit more critical at yourself and saying, you know, or is this really being bought by the bought in by by the players or? How does a coach realize that they're, they either have it or they don't? Yeah, you're spot on there. It's a buzzword, isn't it? Like it's, it's so easy to come out at a press conference or in the newspaper and say we have a collective vision, but often that doesn't translate any further back towards the team. It just It's something that the coach says so that everyone thinks that. But I think the, the thing that I really learned from Ashley was how – intricate that detail was and how much she believed in it in you know the the collective vision um stemmed right the way through to obviously the language that they used and the common words that they used in the the dressing room and again um uh, you know there's that's the kind of verbal language but also in in little things like um the non-verbal cues so you know certain kind of not sign language but you know waves and points and things like that where you know there there is this collective vision and then it, it flows all the way down to how the players communicate with each other on and off the field and then um what was really interesting was that message um was then replicated i spoke to joe montemuro who's another aussie from melbourne as well who's the coach at arsenal now and he said exactly the same thing he said you know when i knew that the players were really starting to buy into our vision at Arsenal was when they started using the same language that I was using and they start coaching themselves um, in that same language. And so that's when I think, you know, you, you do really have a vision and then the players have bought into the vision when they start regurgitating your own language amongst themselves while you're not there. I did a thing in Canada at Nova Scotia, a clinic, coaching clinic a couple of years ago. And there was a coach there who was from England when he t- he's an experienced man, um, more into the psychology of it, but he went and watched my session, and then he, he as I debriefed the players, he was like, can I listen to your talk, and can I give you some feedback? I'm like, yeah, definitely. Um, I watched him when I was talking to the players, and he just had his eyes closed, and he was looking at the ground, and it looked it, it looked like he was sleeping. And, and, uh, and I was like, bloody hell, I've bored this boy to tears. And afterwards, he talked to me for like 30 minutes and he went through everything I said and he picked up every word, whether it was a positive or a negative. So it's almost, it, do you think we're at a funny place in coaching where we think it's the visuals when really it's the verbals or, or it's being awareness or what do you think it is? Yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. I, I would say 
that level of analysis and it is you know, very very small and sometimes it'll feel like nitpicky uh, and it is confrontational when you have someone do that to you I've had that as well um, but I, I think you're right I think we put so much into particularly the visuals um, when uh, you know I, I think there's probably a need to move that into um, particularly language but then also it's really about understanding how players learn so just because you slap some words up on the wall and say this is our culture that's not enough um, you know there's going to be there's going to be visual learners who that'll be okay for them um, but what about everyone else because we know now that not everyone learns the same way um, and so yeah it, it can get really really um, small and finite and down to one word like you said it's that consistency as well isn't it because right. I always think one of the most underestimated we had a couple of people talking about Sir Alex Ferguson on the podcast and it always comes across that he was, you know, you could say it's control. He ran the club from top to bottom and he knew, but he, he talked to everyone and he treated them all like they were important. It's, it, it, I think we're now at a time in coaching that we're, we're spending a lot of time with, with our top players, but we're ignoring the person that cleans the locker room or the player that, that, do, and they, they, can cause you know if that player moans to another player that can cause a different set of problems big time yeah and that's even more pronounced in my sport where you know we have 18 on the field and then depending on what level you're playing at between four and six on the bench so you're you're running into the 20s in just your first team and so you know the the old adage in Aussie rules is your bottom six uh, what win you games or when you particularly close games. And I don't think that can be any truer. And so, you know, the, the top end guys, obviously they're, they're very, very important and everyone else looks to them um, for guidance and leadership throughout a team. But the, the, the marginal gains, like I was talking about kind of in the first question there, that's, you know, where the, um, the, the bottom end players or the players that are coming through the young players, that's where you get those competitive advantages. And so, yeah, overlooking them, I think, at least in my sport, and I, but I think this translates across whatever sport you're, you're coaching, um, spending time with those guys and understanding them, not just coaching them, but understanding them and what they need and what they want. I think there's massive gains to be made in that area the misinterpretation of coaching that is almost a misinterpretation of communication well you 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 point to that in your book where you're saying autocratic leaders like walt disney aren't actually autocratic so (laughs) do we do we frame them wrong or do we simply just look to do we simply look to oversimplify (laughs) does that make sense yeah i think we look you know we know that humans are very good at putting things in in baskets and mm. and saying you know he's this and he's that and you know we kind of know the reasons for that because it's how our brain stores knowledge and, and all that sort of stuff but what i wanted to explore in the book and what i'm now writing a follow-up book on is um what really happens is that it's more of a sliding scale and um you know there isn't one particular style that uh, one person is and there isn't one particular style that um, succeeds over and over again but I think we we do a really bad job of classifying people you know and Churchill is another one where it's kind of dubious that um, you know obviously 
Um, there's a lot of positive stories about him, but if you really dig into it, there's a lot of negative stories about him as well uh, and his leadership style and things that he did. And, um, Mandela is the same. And so, you know, the, really what we need to be looking at is how we identify the full gamut of, of how leaders actually lead. And then let's talk about that and have a real conversation about that because uh, it's not just Winston Churchill was, um, you know, inspirational and everyone followed him to victory. It's, it's not like that at all. I think it affects coaches as well because when we look at we then you know if society or humans just naturally do it us as coaches should be able to to look deeper but we almost go along with that as well where we happy coach sad coach Pep Guardiola tactical genius clop he shouts and hugs his players so it almost holds back the coaching community as well where we should know better. Big time. Well, we're, we're trying to convince ourselves that there's one way and we're trying to find what that one way is. And the, the simple reality of it is it's so situational and every situation is so different that there isn't going to be one way. And, you know, there's studies now. I was up at University of Toronto recently and there's a professor there that was part of a study where they um, looked at whether angry uh, halftime speeches in basketball actually worked and funnily enough what they found was that they do work but only when that coach is ordinarily described as being quite calm and so you know talking about kind of the it's more of a sliding scale in that you need to understand in any given situation what that team needs and have something for them when they need it. So, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm a particularly angry coach, but I know that if I give my guys an absolute bake at half time, it's probably going to make them sit up. Um, but I can only do that X amount of times before it starts to wear thin and, and it doesn't work. But so, yeah, I, I guess the message is that there's not one way and we don't need to be one thing to the players you know you can kind of move between uh, a whole range of different personalities if you will yeah just on that you you talk about the the concept of contextual leadership where Mm -hmm. leaders must adapt to the needs of the team if the team wants to keep going and and have any chance of thriving so uh, curious to see your insight on how you think we should balance the idea of constantly adapting with the other side of that could be could it be looked at as jumping from idea to idea? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think there's a whole range of different things that we've we've already touched on that all factor into this. So, um, yeah, the idea of contextual leadership is like what is the context? So, um, ultimately, what we need, and it's relatively easy in sport versus in business, where we say, well, what do we want to achieve this season? And so you kind of have this goal on the horizon. And even though that goal might change, ultimately what we're trying to do as leaders is um, gain buy-in from the players and say, like, what do you want to do? Okay, we want to win the championship or we want to make the playoffs. Okay, well, I'm going to use my experience to help guide you through the process of getting to the playoffs. Um, And that's going to take a lot of different things. And one of the things I I talk about in the book is that note that that John Wooden quote, you know, the carrot is mightier than the stick. Um, but that whilst that remains true, it doesn't mean that you don't use the stick. 
Um, you know, there's going to be times where the team needs you to rattle a few cages and make a few changes and kind of um, be a little bit more authoritarian. And there's going to be times where you need to be a little bit more hands-off. Um, and I think kind of acknowledging that is where we should be heading because we know that, um, yeah, one particular style isn't always going to work. And sometimes you just have to have some tricks up your sleeve as a leader. And that's where the experience as a, as a coach and um, as a person comes in. But yeah, I think it's about understanding where the players want to go and then helping guide them. And, and so you need to, like you've been talking about, you got to have conversations with them. If you don't know where they want to go, how are you going to take them there? Yeah, they're inspired by, by their goals. They're not inspired by your goals. I was talking, talking to player about this the other day. Like we all, we all think that players want to win, but they all probably do to a large extent, but that's not necessarily what motivates them, right? No, absolutely. And, and that's the level of, that's the next step. I think the, the level of vulnerability where they can say, um, and there are some sports where it's like this, you know, you look at the NFL, which is a very developed pro model where players will come in and say, I'm probably too good for this situation, but I'm going to come in and I need to rebuild my stock on the open market. So I'm going to give you a year. I'm going to give you a year at $4 million. And in exchange for that, you're going to, you know, I'm going to be your starting cornerback or whatever it is. And you know that he's only there for one year to rebuild his value on the open market so he can go and sign a big contract. But there's a level of vulnerability there where for him to come to the table and say, that's what I want to do. And then the team also to go, yeah, sure, let's do that. And then it becomes inherent on the coach and the team to say, you know, but we want to set you up for success so much that you actually want to stay here longer term than that. Um, And so there's some elements there that I think we can really play around with in other sports and also the business world where if we can get to that level of vulnerability where we're, we are willing to admit that we're motivated by money at this time in our life, or we're motivated by winning at this time of our life or moving up, you know, into a leadership role or not having to move up into a leadership role, whatever it is. Um, that's where we need to get to, to be able to really foster these, these really high performing environments. Yeah. It's almost like we're all, <laughs> we're all pretending that, we all want to win. We all want to win. But in reality, everyone has different agendas. And some people are looking for just some, especially youth soccer. Some people are looking for an experience. Some people are looking for the college scholarship. Majority of players are just looking for social. And some are doing it because their parents are making them do it. So right. what, you, what you're saying there is it would be better if we just put these on the table and we're more open about it. 100%. And, and the reality is, you know, that's not a one-time conversation either. You know, you, those things are going to change. Um, you know, the, the example I always give is, you know, you've got this high-performing salesperson and, you know, they're single and they're at the bar every night and they do all their sales at the bar. And then when they go and have a kid, their priorities change. And so their life priorities change and maybe they can't go to the bar every night. And so, you know, if you think about that, kind of idea that there's going to be life events happening outside of sport they're going to change this person's motivators it needs to be that constant communication um you know like we've kind of been talking about this the the whole time here is you've you've got to know as the coach you've got to know and and whether that's in you know sit down conversations or you go for a walking meeting or 
Um, like you've got to find a way to be able to get that out of people so that you know how to motivate them, you know, throughout the year or throughout the years, um, that they're on your team. For example, we, we think in college that, how do I put this? We think that people want to, you know, when they come in, they're 18 years of age, their motivations are the same three, Mm. four years, but their motivations, like you just said, people's lives and motivations and priorities change. The the problem is is that again we don't have those conversations or discussions. So so I've changed. That's it's along the lines of I've changed without telling anybody. Um, right. But coaches do that as well, don't they, Cody? To a certain extent. Oh, of course, yeah, definitely. And and, and I think there's that. Um, you know, it's a two way conversation. To to your point there, you know, it, it's not just about always having uh, your players come to you. You know, I think there's that conversation then has to go back the other way when you say, well, you know, these are my motivators now. This is what I'm looking to achieve. I don't know why a coach would be exempt from that or exempt from having to kind of show their vulnerabilities and, and their own self-awareness with what they're looking for at the same time. Um, because again, that then fosters that relationship. That player then knows how to interact with you uh, or you hope they know how to interact with you on a bit different of a level. Um yeah, it's it's complex, but you're right that having the conversations and coaches, like I I think that would be an a, an interesting study for me would be the amount of the amount of times a successful coach talks to a team in a t- in a group setting that's not just about tactics or systems. You know, it's just it's just conversations and flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, because some some coaches, because I think we also mis misinterpret coach player communication because sometimes a coach who's like yeah i talk to my players all the time but it's the same one all the time you know right so the rest of them aren't getting any attention at the back yeah and and it uh, i think there's that kind of self-awareness piece and one of the the most amazing uh examples of self-awareness i've ever ever seen going back to steve kerr i don't know if you heard this but there was a game in i think january or february where he let them coach themselves and so they basically you know it was during the the cold months of february and these guys have gone to four straight finals and so he'd been coaching them for you know 500 600 games in four years so a lot and um let them coach themselves and then they asked him at the press conference why did you do that and he said because they've stopped listening to me and there's not much I can do like I'm sick of my own voice they're sick of my voice and so you know we we tried this um you know we tried something uh it was designed to you know stimulate xyz uh and there's just a three minute clip and you can look it up on youtube um but it's just the most amazing self-awareness from a coach to say you know what they're not listening to me anymore. We've got to do something else. And, mm. and and the message is that's okay if they don't listen to you. Like we've spent so much time together um, that that's going to happen. It's human nature. You think about it in any other discipline, you stop listening after a while. Well, we've all been there for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, so, so why not talk about that and, and just have that on the table like we talked about before? Mm. You you recently posted a blog from uh, about a Danish club, FC. I'm not even gonna. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt FC Nordsjælland. Um, that's probably way off. But they've appointed 
what they believe to be the world's first director of character development. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Blew me away that. So do you think clubs are, we need to be more intentional or even start putting our money where our mouth is and investing more in this area? I think so. And I, you know, Scandinavia seems to be at the forefront of all of this, both culturally and from a sporting perspective. But yeah, I, I was so fascinated by that. And it stems from, um, yeah, them looking to uh, basically dig deeper into their, their values as a club and have them really stem through the whole club. And so, you know, someone should potentially be in charge of that rather than just, um, you know, shoving these kids from all over the world into an academy and saying that they come out with the same, um, same values and, and character. Um, so it's I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. It's obviously not going to probably go to plan the first time around, but I'd be interested to see who follows suit pretty quickly. That's an interesting one as well, is that, you know, everyone is doing culture these days, but if it's all the same, then when you get them at a later age, it, it might just go over their heads in terms of, you know, it's just, again, buzzwords. When reality, we would be better, you know, in terms of product differentiation, can we now look in sport as team differentiation just to engage players more and maybe get buy-in that they're going to they're gonna be more more engaged to change or, or just more excited about everyday life if they think it's something different than they've done the rest of their life, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think you're right there. Um, and what's interesting is that the fact that everyone has kind of become the same culture, but that doesn't sit very well with me because you think about, you know, even the differences in, in cities and, you know, we talked before the show about different cities that we've lived in and, and the differences in those cities. And so that really should be the culture of a football club. It's the football club of that, that city. Um, and I'm thinking of, you know, I spoke to Graham Potter recently when he was still at, at Ustersund and, and we were talking about, you know, how they had been able to bring in people from all around the world and have them subscribe to kind of the local customs and the local ideas and and how that was behind a lot of their success or that was one factor that was behind a lot of their success. Um, and they're bringing in people from like warring countries and, and having them play together and, um, yeah, kind of, there was so he, you know, he talked about the commonalities of, of people rather than the differences, and you know how um, doesn't matter where you're from. There's these certain level of of uh, similarities that we all have, um, and he was able to clue in on that as a coach, and you know, go up five divisions or whatever they did in in six years. The British Lions documentary. I'm googling this real quick. Because I want to get the name of the coach, 1997. Um, have you seen this, Living with Lions? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. Oh, you need to watch it. So basically, again, I should have uh, I should have had all this in place, but I didn't know we were going to go in this direction. So there's <laughs> there's uh, the Scottish coach gives a talk to the the speeches in it are like like hairs in the back of your neck stuff. Like it's just amazing. But he gives one of these talks, and he's saying that. He's basically telling these British players that 
you know what the problem with British people is? Is whenever we go on holidays, the first thing we look for is an Irish pub. And the <laughs> second thing we look for is the newspaper from back home. And the third thing we do is complain that the weather's too hot. And I'm like, that's exactly what we do. <laughs> so now, I mean, what you're saying about Graham, did you feel, or do you feel now that, that it's the coach's responsibility to, to almost change their environment to help them become a better coach as well? I think so, yeah. I, I think that's a, a probably a larger portion of what needs to happen today um, than the tactics. Um, you know, I, I think uh, you can win both ways, but, um, you know, trying to kind of, um, I guess, build that, you know, we talk about legacy, uh, another influential um, mm-hmm. piece of work, but, um, you know, that kind of idea and really digging deep into what it means for this club and then, you know, setting your coaching agenda around, um, being able to utilize that, uh, I think that's a huge competitive advantage. Whereas we kind of, we just imagine that you come in and um, fiddle around with the tactics and this player is now going to do this when they used to do that. Um, I think that's uh, a pretty short-sighted view. And so it kind of ends up being, uh, you know, a short tenure, funnily enough. Well, how about you personally and moving from Australia to Toronto? How have you changed as what has culture done to you in terms of your coaching style or your philosophies? Well, the first thing it's done is I complain about the weather uh, <laughs> all the time, <laughs> which is a very Canadian thing. Uh, and I drink Tim Hortons somehow. <laughs> I don't know how. Uh, um, uh, uh, for me, it was, um, you know, I, I'd always worked with elite talent in Australia. So my, I came up through the under-18s program, so where all the the AFL players get drafted from. I played at that level. I started coaching at that level. And um, so uh, what I had to change was really my dialogue with players where um, even by the time they get to me at the, the national team level, they've usually come from a different sport within about two years. And so they're still developing their skills. Um, so the, the motivation side is actually pretty well taken care of because a lot of these players never reached an international level before and so wearing the maple leaf on their chest kind of ticks a box that means I'm pretty sure that they're going to be motivated to do that and so it becomes about um, still kind of massaging that but really working on how do I make you the best person and and often for me that means talking to them in in a dialogue that's more familiar to them so for instance someone comes from basketball, talking Aussie rules terminology to them doesn't really work. Whereas if I can say, you know, pretend that you're boxing out for a rebound, um, that movement then means something to them because then they can visualize that and then they can do it. Um, Whereas I think previously what a lot of coaches had tried to do was um, really coach them in Aussie rules terms that doesn't work. It would be like someone who's never seen golf before and you ask them to hit the ball off the tee. Mm. They would have no idea what to do. Um, So I've really had to adapt to – I've had to learn a lot of specifics about the games here, you know, hockey and and what are the coaching terminologies in hockey? Um, What are the movements in in football? You know, 
basketball, rugby. Um, and so I spent a lot of my time speaking to coaches around Canada um, to try and find little nuances about how I can coach players that come from that sport. Interesting. Yeah, so again, sort of coming from as a, as a UK coach, as a foreign coach in the US, Right. So many, so many of us do the other way around. We come in through the the term, the hot terms for Monday night football of players to to impress them, and then wonder why they they look at us with blank stares. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that happens too. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, last last one for you. Um, let's say you've you know you get a a, a massive billionaire comes in tomorrow. Um, and offers your club the chance to to do whatever they want um, in terms of getting staffing in and building infrastructures. What, what what would you add? What would be the first thing that you would add outside of facilities? What would you add to to, to the staffing or to the to the environment? That's a really good question. I would add something along the lines of um, the mental performance. Um, so maybe along the lines of that kind of um, character development, I probably wouldn't call it that, but I'm really interested at the moment in the mental aspects of sport and how it's, regardless of who you talk to, whether it's pro cyclists or uh, you know top NFL guys, that's still a really unexplored area. Um, and um, I think there's a huge advantage to be had there that you know facilities cancel each other out whether you're you know usa canada doesn't matter whereas i think there's some advantages there and i i think we can really understand our players a lot better than we currently do and so there's going to be some things like it would be developing a language internally to be able to talk to each other like we've been talking about or you know ask certain questions that elicit a certain response so that i know how players are going at any given time things like that um so that would tick a box for me because I'm really interested in that area and, and how we can improve high performance in that area. But also I think it would hugely benefit the well-being of um, of the players and, you know, mental health is obviously a big, big thing this week with what's happened. And, um, yeah, I think taking care of that aspect is something that we still overlook in sports, even though we're probably further along than the rest of society. Great point, great point. Um, the new book, talk to us about it. I'm intrigued with the Graham Potter interview, so what, what's the what's the angle with it? Well, I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into that contextual leadership idea. And again, it was just an idea. It was a chapter in Where Others Won't. Um, just something that I observed. And so I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into that. And so I've, yeah, I've already done a few interviews. Um, Rick Charlesworth, who was a field hockey coach um, for the Australian men's and women's teams, won a bunch of Olympic gold medals. I spoke to him, uh, Graham Potter, Joe Montemiro at Arsenal, like I talked about. Uh, I'm hoping to get to people like Steve Kerr um, and just kind of talk about, yeah, how what are the ups and downs? Like, let's talk about those ups and downs as a coach rather than talking about all the good things that work. The reality is we need to, you know, if we want to talk about a season, there's going to be ups and downs through that season and, and how you manage through those ups and downs. Um, 
I'm really interested in in that at the moment. So that's the the new book, and that's what I've been talking to people about. And it doesn't seem to be an area that many people are focused on. Well, here I look forward to reading it, Cody, and and thank you so much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate your insight and your time, and and thank you for everything you're doing in the in the coaching community. And I'm going to encourage every coach who listens to to go out and and buy your book and read your blogs because you're challenging conventional thinking and that's what the that's what the world needs at the minute in coaching uh, thank you appreciate that brilliant thanks Cody we'll get you on soon and uh, whenever you release it we'll get another one for you for sure love it let's do it thanks brilliant. Gary thanks so much to Cody for his time and his insight there hope you enjoyed that as much as I did um, the big big takeaway for me was when he talked about at the start about a successful culture a successful vision being that the players using the same language as the coaching staff and having the same conversations that you're having with them, they're having with each other and that consistency going the right the way down in terms of leadership and captains and just player to player. It just gets me thinking because too often I believe we judge culture or judge environments by just straight up what we're doing. If we're ticking a box and we have we have a set of team standards, so we have a good culture. We have a set of team rules, we have a good culture. We have intense practices, we have a good culture. But if the players aren't driving it, aren't bought in, and aren't talking about it in the same passion or intensity or direction in which you are or the coaching staff are, then it's not really, it's a, it's a coach-led culture, and that's almost the same as a set of rules, which is eventually only going to go so far so I think that the self-awareness piece of that there is huge, that you should continue to question how to gauge your culture. It's not whether you win games. We won on Saturday. We've got a great culture. We've lost two, three games in a row. We've got a bad culture. Everyone's annoyed. Now, of course, they're going to be annoyed because losing isn't a very pleasant experience. So can we go a little bit deeper with how we're measuring culture and how we're analysing our own culture? And I, I love... Cody's work and his books because he challenges us to do that through other areas and through the business field and through Aussie rules and through different cultures and different places and different sports and I think that's where soccer coaches can get a little bit better uh, with where we're taking on information there's other sports that are that are moving a little bit quicker I feel in other areas in terms of culture and in terms of player feedback and in terms of player-led environments than, than what we are so always trying to find a little bit more about those cultures and trying to expose myself and then hopefully uh, other people through that through the podcast so really appreciate Cody coming on uh, yeah check out his book for sure for sure you really really enjoy it and give him a look on uh, on Twitter he, he posts some fantastic stuff so hope you enjoyed it thanks so much for listening before you shoot off please tell me what you think um, on Instagram at Gary Kernin on Twitter at Gary Kernin Give it a like on the iTunes page or a rating. And we'll have another one coming very, very soon. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.